This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast. Education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, 500 years. <laughs> Double Think is an idea inspired by George Orwell's 1984, in which he suggested that we have the ability to hold in our little brains two contradictory thoughts simultaneously and accept them both as true. So imagine you believe this and you believe the opposite simultaneously and you're able to pull out whichever one is relevant. If this one helps you, you pull that one out and then you bury the other one. If this one helps you, you pull it out and you bury the other one. Double think. Simultaneously holding contradictory thoughts Bearing the one that isn't useful for you in the moment and using the one that is and being able to switch it at will. It's a really powerful idea. Hi, and welcome back to the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Starring Isaac Morehouse. <laughs> uh, and also welcome to, why don't you introduce my Yes, podcast. welcome to 500 Years uh, by Jeff Till. You can find 500years.org for more. Yeah, both on iTunes. So, Isaac, yesterday on, or maybe the day before on Facebook, you posted this this uh, sort of long, longish Facebook post that really sort of uh, juiced my creativity. And when I looked at it, I was like, "Wow, he just wrote a outline for a podcast." And so, I thought I could take credit for recognizing the value of your great. <laughs> talent here and so decided asked if you wanted to do a joint podcast yeah and uh of course i have become a master at taking credit for ideas generated by other people so i'm, I'm all about this <laughs> okay so i'm just going to read the facebook post and just for the the listeners uh knowledge it was well received it, it created almost no controversy which was kind of surprising so here it is. Uh, just about every argument for school is actually an argument for the value of education that proves nothing about the value of school. Just about every argument for law is actually an argument for the value of order that proves nothing about the value of law. Just about every argument for welfare is actually an argument for the value of compassion that proves nothing about the value of welfare. Just about every argument for the military is actually an argument for the value of security that proves nothing about the value of the military. Just about every argument for regulation is actually an argument for the value of safety that proves nothing about the value of regulation. Doublespeak is alive and well. Those who succeed in making the name of their pet policy linguistically interchangeable with the basic universal value always get to play offense. So bravo, Isaac, I really like that post. Thank you, you know, it's funny, it popped into my head because Something that I see a lot with with having launched Praxis 
there's this constant stream all the time of everyone has to go to college because that's the only way to get a job. And if you go to college, you'll earn more money, et cetera, et cetera. So then anytime there's something that runs counter to this, anytime you say, hey, 82% of grads don't have jobs lined up when they graduate. 60 some percent of grads either have no job or they're working in a job that doesn't require a degree anyway, or anything like that. Or, or say, you know, um, what if you skip college and do praxis instead? And whenever we share stuff like that, there's always, there's always professors and education types who will say something like, yeah, but that's not what college is all about liberal arts is really, really valuable. And they'll make this 10 point argument for why liberal arts is valuable. And it's it, this clever bait and switch where in my response is, yes, I agree, liberal arts are valuable. In fact, they're so valuable, that's another reason why you should not go to school, go to college. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like the, um, the, the sort of the switching story constantly, where first it's like, well, this is to prepare you for, uh, for the real world. And then when you point out like, you know, especially in elementary school, or high school or college that it does none of that then it's like well this is about learning critical thinking and it's like well it no it doesn't if you look at your own experience your own terrible experience with this or look at your children's experience you realize that it doesn't do that either it actually does almost just the opposite it teaches you how to memorize and how to regurgitate and then they're like well it's it's to teach you a, a you know a, a worldview or to give you a, a broad palette of of you know bits of knowledge and you're like well it doesn't really do that either you know and so anyways what, what I, the, I thought the format of the podcast is we'd go through each of these different sentences so we just started in with school and so just to repeat the the line just about every argument for school is actually an argument for the value of education that proves nothing about the value of school so you want to get a degree why let me tell you what society will tell you. It increases your chances of getting a job, provides you with an opportunity to be successful. Your life will be a lot less stressful. Education is the key. Now let me tell you what your parents will tell you. Make me proud. It increases your chances of getting a job, provides you with an opportunity to be successful. Your life will be a lot less stressful. Education is the key. Now let's look at the statistics. Steve Jobs, net worth, 7 billion, RIP. Richard Branson, net worth, 4.2 billion. Oprah Winfrey, net worth, 2.7 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, Henry Ford, Steven Spielberg, Bill Gates. Now here comes the coup de grace. Looking at these individuals, what's your conclusion? Neither of them in being successful ever graduated from a higher learning institution. Now some of you will protest like, you know money is only the medium by which one measures worldly success. And some of you even have the nerve to say, I don't do it for the money. So what are you studying for? To work for a charity? Need more clarity? Let's look at the statistics. Jesus, Muhammad peace be upon him, Socrates, Malcolm X, Mother Teresa, Spielberg, Shakespeare, Beethoven, Jesse Owens, Muhammad Ali, Sean Carter, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, Michael Joseph Jackson, were either of these people unsuccessful or uneducated? All I'm saying is that if there was a family tree, hard work and education would be related, but school would probably be a distant cousin. If education is the key, then school is the lock. 
because it rarely ever develops your mind to the point where it can perceive red as green and continue to go when someone else says stop. Because as long as you follow the rules and pass the exams, you're cool. But are you aware that examiners have a checklist? And if your answer is something outside of the box, the automatic response is across. And then they claim that school expands your horizons and your visions. Well, tell that to Malcolm X who dropped out of school and is well-renowned for what he learned in a prison. Proverbs 17, 16. It does a fool no good to spend money on education. Why? Because he has no common sense. George Bush. Need I say more? Education is about inspiring one's mind, not just filling their head. And take this from me because I'm an educated man myself who only came to this realisation after countless nights in the library with a can of Red Bull keeping me awake till dawn and another can in the morn, falling asleep in between piles of books which probably equated to the same amount I had spent on my rent, memorise equation, facts and dates right down to the letter, half of which I'd never remember and half of which I'd forget straight after the exam and before the start of the next semester, asking anyone if they had notes for the last lecture. I often found myself running to class just so I could find a spot on which I could rest my head and fall asleep without making a scene. Ironic, because that's the only time I ever spent in university chasing my dreams. And then after nights with a dead mind, I then find myself in the queue of half-awake student zombies waiting to hand in an assignment. Maybe that's why they called it a deadline. And then after three years of mental suppression and frustration, my proud mother didn't even turn up to my graduation. Now, I'm not saying that school is evil and there's nothing to gain, but all I'm saying is understand your motives and reassess your aims, because if you want a job working for someone else, then help yourself. But then that would be a contradiction, because you wouldn't really be helping yourself, you'd be helping somebody else. There's a saying which says, if you don't build your dream, someone else will hire you to help build theirs. What I've seen is that everybody, it was so frustrating, is that everybody has this vivid school experience. And by vivid, I don't mean exciting and energetic, but I mean uh, ingrained and, and painfully large. And they've, they've actually experienced it. So it's, it's even different than when we're talking about the military or welfare or law, yeah. because yeah. Everyone, everyone has actually experienced it for the 15,000 hours. And then even when, usually when you're talking about school, and that doesn't even include college, you're actually even talking about their children and people are witnessing this sort of the misery and the unhappiness and the amount of time it takes for the kids to go to school. And to point this out, of course, uh, you'll never piss off someone, someone more than, than to point out that school and education are completely different things, <laughs> especially in the era of the internet where we, have, we obviously don't need gatekeepers anymore for information. It's, it's all out there. It's it, free. Oh, it's, I mean, it's so funny. The, the power of, getting words conflated with one another it i mean it's so deep if you do a google search for education all the results are going to be school related desks and chalkboards and people looking miserable and, and tests and things like that and once that happens once you get to that almost synthesis of these two words association being so strong in people's mind it's almost impossible to have a sensible discussion because as soon as you say hey what if school is damaging what if you pulled your kid out of school but they need to learn Education is valuable. Education is important. And it's so hard to just step back and say, oh, I know, I know. That's exactly why I'm thinking learning might be done better somewhere else. But it's 
it's so fused. And when you when you ask yourself, how many arguments have you actually heard people make that are arguments uniquely about the value of school in particular? That specific method of seven in the morning till three in the afternoon, being in these cinder block cells, having one teacher in front of 30 kids. Do you ever hear people making arguments for the specific things that are truly unique to school? I, I mean, there's almost none. The arguments are almost always about other values, like, but kids, it's really important that they learn social skills. It's really important that kids have reading comprehension. It's important whether or not those are true, none of those are arguments for school, this particular manifestation. And that's what's really interesting. There's just very few arguments. I mean, I don't know, Jeff, if, can you think of some? There's probably some, but arguments that are specifically for the school institution. Probably just the most sinister um, in the sense of when I first released my complete case for home education, one of my first comments which was uh, that I received on my site from someone who, who had read it uh, said that, and, and actually parroted one of my arguments against, but it was that school prepares you for the tedium and the responsibility of adult life is that you're going to have to show up to work, you know, at the specific time and do a bunch of activities that you don't like. And you're going to be told when your lunch break is and when to go home. And that school was, was essential conditioning to meet that state of misery. Yeah, yeah I, w I might even say, okay, that's that's a really depressing worldview. But if you have that worldview and you think it is essential for kids to learn uh, obedience, monotony, boredom, tedium, I bet I can find a way that's a lot cheaper than $12,000 of taxpayer money per year per student. I mean, they <laughs> yeah, could just go yeah. get a job right now or they could just, you know, there's probably even if that's the main value. But but yeah, I mean, it, there's. Yeah. Oh, that would wouldn't that be awesome? Because then they would actually have some uh, money in their pocket yeah, exactly. as, as an outcome. Exactly. If they want to learn the value of boredom, I'll pay them to, <laughs> to dig a ditch for me. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting. So I think just just pushing that and saying. I want to make you actually argue for the thing that you claim to be arguing for, because it's it's just too easy to say I'm for education, I'm for the environment, I'm for puppies, uh, <laughs> and yeah. you know, uh, which by the way, I would happily argue against puppies, so I might be an exception there. But <laughs> yeah, no, I would argue against puppies as well, uh, being the proud owner of one. The the other, the other thing about the education experience is that everyone has a a genuine education experience. So you'll be talking to someone who might advocate for school, but then when you turn it to uh, what they do for a living, you know, whether they're an accountant or a physicist or a writer, or if um, they can sit and, and list you the, you know, the, these detailed histories of World War II, or they can um, ex explain to you Mixolydian guitar scales, or, or even go, you know, every position player on their favorite football team. And you realize all of this, this educational experience that they have was all obtained outside of school. Mm. Yeah, and that, that people are actually, you know, desperately horny for knowledge. And uh, I like that phrase. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because it's also there's this assumed causality to where okay, well, I, I mean, even if, if you are really happy with your life, many people don't seem happy with their lives, but they still seem insistent on making sure that their children get to live the same unhappy <laughs> life. But assuming you are to say, well, look, I'm happy with my life and I went to school and, uh, you know, I just don't think that's enough. It's not enough of an argument. You could say, hey, when I was a kid, you know, uh, 
my car got destroyed in a wreck or someone stole my bike and I ended up a happy person. Therefore, this should happen to everyone. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. it's just not a compelling argument, but it's hard because it's a counterfactual that you're dealing with. Yeah. Cool. Let's move on to the next one. What's up, guys? It's Joe. So there's a lot of laws here in the United States, all right? A lot of shit we can't do. Among some of these laws are some weird shit, and I have found the weirdest laws in the United States. In Oregon, it's illegal to place a container filled with human fecal matter on the side of the highway. I mean, that goes without saying, no? Obviously, you can't just shit in buckets and leave them on the side of the road. What kind of person are you? I've heard of, like, peeing into, like, Snapple bottles on, like, a long road trip because you can't stop, so you just, like, pee in a Snapple bottle and you, like, toss it out the window. But who the fuck is shitting in containers and leaving that on the side of the highway? Yo, just give it a bucket, give it a bucket, man. Come on. What the fuck? Why? What are you oh doing? Oh my god. What are you doing? I gotta shit. You're shitting, you're shitting in the- I gotta shit. Oh my, he's shitting in the bucket. Oh okay, yeah, we're doing this now. I missed the bucket. Oh, you missed the- Not on the seat. Oh god. Oh my god. It's everywhere. Great. That's great. Just great. You happy now? Can you, can you turn on the air conditioner? It stinks in here. Who's doing that? I don't know the penalty for breaking this law, but I hope it's prison. Any person who is crazy enough to take a shit in the backseat of a car less than a foot away from someone else is disgusting and deserves to be locked up. Oh, the law. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just about every argument for law is actually an argument for the value of order that proves nothing about the value of law. This is a hard one. This is a little bit more complex, a little bit more subtle probably than the others. Um, and I think this again gets to the question of causality and what's actually doing the heavy lifting in society. And there's this assumption that it's law. Uh, one of my favorite essays of all time is called The Myth of the Rule of Law by John Hasness. I highly recommend going and reading that essay. Just Google it and you can read it. Um, but, but really it reveals how the order we see around us is not the result of law. And just looking as a historical fact and as a logical fact, when you sort of understand the way you know, economics works and political economy works, order has to come first. You know, order has to come first before a law can even come onto it, you know, sort of be added on after the fact. So, I mean, take things that people say, you know, child labor. I don't like child labor. It sounds icky and horrible. Who wants to live in a country where, you know, children are working in factories? So we have this assumption because there are laws against child labor in this country, we assume that that's the reason why children aren't working in this country. But it's not the reason. It's it's because we we're wealthy enough and we used to have child labor. And then once it was basically gone and some tiny fraction of the poorest children were working in factories, then there was a law passed to put to, to codify what was already part of the culture, what was already part of the social norms, what the order that had already been brought about spontaneously. And the weird thing is our short memories. As soon as that law is passed, we forget that it was ever uh, something that occurred without the law, and we just immediately assume. So I like to use the the naked running naked in the shopping mall. This is my question I like to ask people. You know, if 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 indecent exposure laws were overturned overnight, would you run naked in a shopping mall immediately? And nobody would, because the law isn't the thing keeping us from doing that. Running naked in a shopping mall is something that no one wants to do, given our social norms and constraints. And uh, you know the various private policies at these malls and things like that, you get blacklisted and whatnot. 
So we have a world in where people don't run naked in a shopping mall and only after the fact, maybe once in a blue moon when somebody gets drunk and does it, some lawmaker sees this as an opportunity, they say, I'm gonna pass a law to put into code what already happens all the time. And then they pass the law and as soon as that law is in place, everyone acts as if that's the source of the order. So when you talk about removing a law or um, you, know, you talk about some problem in society, everyone immediately thinks we need this law. And when you ask them why, they never make arguments for law itself. Because what is law? It is, it is something where a, mono a group has a monopoly on the use of violence, the state, and they get the ability to enforce this and interpret it in their own way. It's very bureaucratic. It's, very, you know, it's got all the problems that we know, the corruption and everything. That's all law is. So if you're making an argument for law, it's actually kind of a tough thing to argue for because it's a pretty ugly, blunt instrument. So people will make an argument for order. I don't want to live in a society where everybody's running naked in front of my children in the shopping mall, as if that's the immediate effect <laughs> of you know removing yeah. the law. Going to the, uh, the, the child labor law is, is almost the nice version of, of the reason that you just explained. I, was, I, I wish I had this woman's name, but there was the labor secretary under... Uh, Roosevelt wrote the second Roosevelt, who, who was actually the one who brought in like the child labor laws, the minimum wage laws, uh, the the restriction of the work week, and as, essentially it was all at the behest of like white unions yes. who didn't like the competition uh, from, you know, cheaper uh, black labor, cheaper child labor, etc. So a lot of those things were protectionist, anyways. Uh, had a much more sort of uh, crony or or sinister origin. Yeah, that, that's probably not even the best example. I always I like to think about traffic laws even, which seem really basic to everyone. Like, well, of course you need traffic laws. And there are a lot of instances where uh, after a disaster or something, you know, power has gone down. And people don't actually get in more accidents when you don't have stoplights and things like that. It's, it's really surprising to people. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to claim that like that's always the case. I think there are all sorts of ways that these kind of rules of the road can emerge um, you know, without having laws. But the, the bottom line is human beings are rationally self-interested and these orders will emerge and they always do emerge before the laws in order to mitigate these kind of conflicts. Um, so anyway. Yeah, no, and going into the, the, um, the order emerges first idea is it seems a lot of, like a lot of laws are, are ham-fisted blanket reactions to exceptions to order. Mm. Uh, so the, the you know, the, the drug laws, for example, are there's some very small percentage of people who use drugs and then a smaller sample who abuse them and then a smaller sample who then use that abuse on other people. And so the the blanket thing is just, well, we'll just make the whole thing illegal. And now, you know, now this this problem to an, a rare exception is solved. Uh, you know, you always see this except this after the um, whatever the. Uh, the mass shooting is like we just had in Orlando. Yeah, uh, there, there was a core question, which was, what, you know, why didn't anyone retaliate at the club? And, you know, every, everyone wanted to point out that, well, it was illegal to bring a gun into the bar. Uh, but then the, the reaction is, is, well, we need some more laws to, to make this stop happening. You yeah. know, despite it being the total exception of, yeah. of a crazy person. Like everything that happened was already illegal. So obviously the law is not, <laughs> you know, like yeah. murder is illegal. It's obviously not enough in some extreme cases to have a law against something, but yet that's the, the immediate thing that's sought. And, and I think it, again, like in the case of school, if you sort of try to force someone who's advocating for law and, and really just advocating for order, but calling it law, try to ask them, 
are is there any arguments you can make uniquely for law as the instrument of order that make it truly the only or best way to to give i mean in the case of guns it's particularly absurd to think you know um boy guns are dangerous so we better pass a law against them. When you think about what law actually is, what that is, because what you really want is order. You want minimal gun violence or none. But when you think about what law is as the instrument to bring that about, it's, boy, guns are dangerous. Let's make sure only the self-selected, like, you know, a-holes, uh, either who want to go be police officers or uh, and have no accountability to anyone else, or people who are already not going to uh, abide by any laws, let's make sure they're the only ones who can obtain guns. I mean, that's, you know, so, so assuming that law is the best way to bring something about is a really bad assumption. And when you ask somebody, when you sort of force them to explain to you why it's better than the other alternatives, um, you know, I think you start to actually get some clearer thinking. Yeah, there's, there's, I don't know if this fits in, but there's, there's also- um, We'll make even, it even fit. <laughs> okay. Even even our application of law, at least here in the United States, is always um, sort of a, a punitive thing. So if, if I crash my car into somebody else's house, then I, I have to pay like a ticket to the state. Uh, but there's no, you know, so it's like punitive justice, but not restorative justice, where, you know, where if I do, if I do something wrong, that I would actually have to pay and make it right again. That, that's what's really actually interesting. I, I heard this lecture one time years ago, and I thought it was so radical when I heard the title. And it was basically, we should abolish all of criminal law. And I thought, that's absurd. You know, that's that's it, what's keeping all the order. And I actually, it was just my ignorance. And most of us don't understand the law well enough to know what's actually going on. But this legal scholar sort of walked through. So there's there's civil law, which is part of this common law tradition, which is an emergent thing that's that's predated governments and exists independently of governments. And yeah, they get involved sometimes in different ways, but it's there's civil law, which is really about uh, restorative law. And then there's criminal law, which has nothing to do at all with either um, protecting society or making any victims whole. It's only concerned about you know, you'll see like the people versus so-and-so. It's concerned about making sure that someone who breaks, uh, who, who harms government basically has to pay, basically be punished for that. And that punishment comes at the taxpayer expense. It's, it's usually putting yeah. them in jail or something like that. So the, the victim is not having to give up anything, or I mean, I'm sorry, the perpetrator isn't having to give up anything to restore the victim in criminal law. The taxpayers are having to give up something to punish the victim, not for the crime. C criminal law is not about the wrong that's been done to the victim. It's about the wrong that's been done to the state, um, which is a really absurd notion when you think about it. Yeah. So then uh, the victim sort of gets to pay twice yeah, for right. their uh, for their their victimhood. Cool. Let's move on to the next one. News Radio KLBJ 748. Lacey is calling from Riverside. Hi, Lacey. Welcome. You're, excuse Hi. me, Lucy. You're on KLBJ. Hi, how are you? Hi, Lucy. Good morning. I just wanted to say, while workers out there and people like you that are preaching morality at, at people like me living on welfare, can you really blame us? I mean, I get to sit home. I get to go visit my friends all day. I even get to smoke weed. Me and, I, and people that I know that are illegal immigrants that don't contribute to society, we, we're still going to get paid. Our check's going to come in the, in the mail every month, and it's going to be on time, and we get subsidized housing. We even get uh, presents delivered for our kids for Christmas. Why should I work? So you know what? Y'all get the, the benefit of uh, 
you know, saying, oh, look at me, I'm a better person. But when y'all sitting back talking about how y'all are a better person because y'all go to work, we're the ones getting paid. So can you really blame us? Are you talking on Obama phone as well? How, how much yeah, do you... Yeah, I got an Obama phone. How, how hmm. much have you added up the total of what you get each month, Lucy? No, I haven't. But you, what what do you get? Just quickly go down the list of the things you get from the taxpayers. Well, I pay... I only have to pay fifty dollars a month for out of for rent, mm-hmm. and it's supposed it's supposed to be a six hundred something dollars. So there's there's five hundred fifty dollars right there. Yes, I get four hundred and twenty five dollars a month for food stamps. I get a uh, hundred and fifty dollars a month paid on my electric bill. I get a cell phone, and then I get a hundred dollars a month paid towards my water. And that's from the city of Austin. Yes. Do you have any kids, Lucy? I have three kids. And does does your husband work? Uh, he'll work every now and then, part time, but he doesn't work very much. Do, does he? He get, just doesn't really see the need for it. Does he get benefits as well? Yeah. So that those that, are family those are family benefits. Th- those are family benefits, and 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 Lucy is asking everyone listening right now. Why should she get up and drive in the rain to work all day yeah. and pay taxes when she can get this kind of help from those of you going to work? Just about every argument for welfare is actually an argument for the value of compassion that proves nothing about the value of welfare. You know, what What actually got me thinking about this, and you did an episode on this, your Singularity um, Bros recap episode where you talked about the um, – basic income guarantee or universal basic income it's sometimes called and uh it's what's so weird to me is everyone who talks about things like a universal basic income or some different form of welfare or some new government safety net or program they only ever argue for the program because they argue it's important to live in a society where the poor can be helped it's important to help the poor it's important so that poor people can so they're basically arguing for compassion, for kindness, mm-hmm. yeah. for charity. They're not actually making a positive argument for for this particular program. And in the case of something like UBI, I think if you actually look at either just the logic of it, which to me is very dehumanizing, uh, and, and it's, it's it to me it's like there's no dignity in it. I think it actually does something corrosive to the soul of the recipients. So you can look at it logically, or just look at the results. Like what happens to people who win the lottery? What happens to people who receive welfare? What happens to union workers who are protected and they get a certain amount of money and they can't be fired ever or tenure professors? Not only how do they perform, but how do they, are they better off? Are they happier? Are they more like, I actually think it's damaging Mm -hmm. to them. And I think that's an argument that at least needs to be had. Yeah, for sure. I I also think it's, um, it's, it's sort of a really, easy excuse to pretend the problem is solved without having having to give a shit. It, it's like um, you once, you know, it's like we have we have this welfare program and I don't you know, I, the money is just taken out of my account, but I don't have to generally be compassion or really, really g- give a shit that I'm, I'm being recuperative with my with my passion, my compassion that I'm, I'm helping people be better. And I just had this 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 thought the other day that the only way to actually build wealth or to not be poor is you have to constantly give more than you receive. 
in in commerce. This is, uh, you know, every economic exchange is is two people getting something they want more that makes them wealthier. And so to think that you could have people who are not giving more than they receive become wealthier is an economic impossibility. So to just to just give money for consumption is is a guaranteed dead end to poverty. It's a, to, I mean, the does likelihood. That make, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. The likelihood that it creates a permanent dependent, you know, class is incredibly high. I mean, you're you're kind of robbing that. You're, you know, it's almost like we talk about minimum wage laws um, and child labor laws that were mentioned, regulations that make it harder to start a business. You're cutting off those first rungs of the ladder. And in the case of what I just mentioned, it's that first chance to, you know, try something and go out there. But I think welfare does the same thing. It subsidizes idleness. It subsidizes not um, being creative, not gaining skills, not, you know, taking action and makes that more attractive. And the longer you do that, the more it's habituated, the more you know that you don't have to do those things. It cuts off that first rung of the ladder. It makes it so much harder for you to learn how to and to ever, you know, build wealth. And I think it 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 actually probably increases. I mean, you subsidize something, you get more of it. So if you subsidize mm -hmm. poverty, you're going to get more of it. Yeah, and and I think the 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 real cruelty, which I, I don't think a lot of people, maybe a lot of people who advocate for welfare or or UBI, is they they don't see what happens when the the nineteen trillion dollar in debt leviathan you know actually goes down and how how additionally help you know how, how much more handicapped these people are going to be mm. now now robbed of their productivity and their their uh welfare check yeah that's actually a really good i haven't thought of it that way but think of it like okay if you're an employee if if you only know how to do one thing and there's one company that does that thing and they and they hire you to do it and this company is in bad financial shape and everyone says that they are living on borrowed time financially. Um, would you feel really good about your prospects knowing that you, <laughs> your economic fortunes are hinged to this one company who is in tremendous debt and shows no signs of getting out of it anytime soon? And that's kind of, I mean, if, if, if you know, you were just a recipient of government welfare, that's, and that's because of that, you haven't really cultivated any other means of, of making a living. Boy, when that ship goes down, <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a really good point. Yeah, just I, I don't want to repeat my whole uh, podcast from that one that you referenced, um, but it would be, I think it would be great if the poverty problem problem was the 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 hobby or the passion of people who are genuinely compassionate about it, mm. instead of this idea that every single you know man woman uh, in in the universe has to contribute to it. Is that there's you know millions of Christians in, in the in the uh, in the country who as part of their their you know core beliefs is to be charitable and to help the poor. There's millions of uh, liberal type people who in their their core beliefs believe that the poor should be helped. And if you put the people who are passionate about it in charge, I mean, first this would have to be you probably want to you know let them keep their tax money and spend it how they wish. They're probably going to be a lot more creative. Uh, than just just sending everyone a check every month. Mm. They're going to find ways to help people. They're going to be interested in the outcomes, which I think is a huge problem with welfare now. Is that uh, we, we, the money is sent, but no no one really checks up on if anything's getting better, mm. and certainly not on an individual level. I don't know. That's, and, and it almost and, it, and that's the problem with these government programs too. Is 
it'd almost be creepier if they were because the thinking of government coming in and checking up on, you know, whether you've met the following criteria for your welfare. I, I mean, you just, you just can foresee already just <laughs> all kinds of weird problems gaming the system. And, you know, it, it yeah, just, yeah, no, I can see that, that, I mean, they already, everyone's already outraged at some of the States that want to do uh, illegal drug tests. And, and I don't have like a big opinion either way on that, but it would be probably seem a, a big intrusion if the, the government charity that is trying to help poor people actually wanted to see if they were helping them or not, yeah. which is, is kind of weird. Uh, if, if it was in private hands, I'm guessing that. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, qualifications. My wife used to work for a, um, a women's shelter and they had sort of a, a food donation area. They had a lot of different things like that. And all of them came with a lot of, you had to sort of agree to enter a program and maybe, you know, not drink or whatever. They all had a lot of criteria and nobody, nobody who came thought that was bad or unfair because they were voluntarily, you know, a part of it and every nobody's tax dollars were taken to, to do it. It was all voluntary. So yeah, it just, the game changes when it's, when it's run by the state. Okay, let's move on to the next one. No, I would strongly oppose it because they're not a threat to our national security. Uh, Iraq has a third-rate army. They have no ability to wage war. Our policies are deliberately destroying the country. They can't feed their children. They're not allowed to have medication. There was a story in today's paper where one of our private charity groups was being fined because they were trying to get medicines into the Iraqi people. So for us to unleash bombs on Iraq at this particular time to kill more innocent people for narrow political reasons, no, there is absolutely no need to cause more bombing because of a very overall flawed foreign policy. How are you going to vote on impeachment? I'll vote, vote for impeachment. For all four articles? Yes, uh, unenthusiastically because I think the charges are way too mild and not touching the issues that I would like to touch. I mean, that's what we should be addressing. But I wish the Congress would address the unconstitutionality of presidents waging war. That, to me, is a lot more serious than uh, Monica Lewinsky, let me tell you. It has nothing to do with national security. Matter of fact, our national security is more jeopardized by permitting this to happen because we're liable to start a war. We're liable to have our military men killed. We're liable to have more attacks on us by terrorists. Uh, just about every argument for the military is actually an argument for the value of security that proves nothing about the value of the military. Jeff, you go so, first on this one because I've been jumping in. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I, I think this is this is kind of uh, like both pathetic and scary and hysterical all at the same time. <laughs> the... You know the amount the amount of people who have died because of military action. You know ranges in the tens of millions over the past century. All all military action is is engaged through the government. It's very rare rare that uh, a citizenry decides to take arms and you know run somewhere else, especially like six thousand miles away. Yeah. To go kill people. To think that primitives, you know, um, getting milk from their camels living in tents can can somehow cross the Atlantic Ocean and even take New Hampshire is is preposterous. I I I don't even understand how this is a thing it, in, it's, in the it, modern world. It's and, so and that, strange. That people think that we we are somehow 
more secure with uh, in you know enraging generations of poor people overseas. So it, it no, truly is. This is this is one where the relationship is. I think in all of these examples here, there's a the relationship is not only not only is it not the case that you know law creates order. Um, but it's often the opposite. I think this one, it's the strongest negative yeah, correlation yeah. of all of them. Like the military is probably the greatest single thing that decreases my security uh, of anything that I can think of. And, and why do I say that? I'm not, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but not only, as you mentioned, I mean, you look at just, you know, intentional uh, murders in world history. We're talking hundreds of millions when it comes to governments and their militaries. Uh, it just everything else pales in comparison. But think about just me. I, I live here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, in this sunny suburban area. I don't think there's anybody anywhere in the world who truly and passionately wants me dead so badly they would dedicate their life and the lives of as many people as they can muster and spend all this time raising money and all these things to try to, like you said, somehow get across the Atlantic get down to Charleston, come up to Mount Pleasant, <laughs> yeah. you know, drive a tank through the neighborhood and blow me up. Like nobody wants to do that to me. There may be people who hate things that I hate. There are people who hate the sports teams I hate or the religious beliefs that I have or the values or whatever. But none of them, when you, when you have to put the cost, you know, of uh, like when you have to pay the cost of violence yourself, nobody wants to, to go and take the risk of, of coming and in, invading me. And in the United States in particular, it's it's especially absurd. Thank goodness, because we do have, uh, most people do have guns or many people. I actually heard this statistic once and I have not proven this, but a, a friend who uh, is very reliable with statistics and things like this, I don't think he would make it up, but I've never verified it. But he said, he said the, the gun owners, the, the registered like deer hunters in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania and Virginia, I think it was those six or seven states combined, are larger than any standing army on earth. So, so you think about, yeah. you know, there's some group somewhere in the world that hates me so much, they wanna somehow get to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina and kill me. Like, good luck, you know? I mean, the, but first of all, I don't think anybody does hate me that much or would, except we've got this military out there going into these other people's neighborhoods and killing them in, the, in my name. So now I do have enemies. Now I do have people that hate me and that probably would want to blow up this neighborhood if they could. Like that's where the lack of security comes from. It's not because just my existence was enough to motivate someone to try to you know, invade the United States to kill me. But the fact that for generations in some places, the military in claiming to be doing it in my name has been bombing and shooting and kicking, you know, and that people grow up knowing people who have been killed in the name of the country that I live in, you know that—that's what makes me less secure. Yeah, that's the the Afghani or the Iraqi American experience is uh, seeing the American flag on you know a drone or a soldier killing your family. Yeah. The you know the the Orlando shooting, uh, to be topical, um, was probably the most confusing thing politically I've seen like on on whatever, whatever TV or Facebook. Since no one knew whether the guy hated gays or whether he hated America for being, for you know, attacking the Middle East. But even even that incident uh, probably would not have happened, you know, without this this legacy of war in the Middle East. And he he said said as much. So he like called the TV station and stuff. There was some study. 
I remember a University of Chicago professor, and I'm trying to remember where this was, um, but he was referencing a study basically of instances of terrorism internationally in like a 30 year span, the last 30 years. Now this is probably five or 10 years ago, so it's dated now. Um, but in all but one, they, they, they studied like 200 instances of terrorism. And in all but one, the terrorists themselves in every case claimed we are specifically doing this for a political reason because somebody's military did this to us and we have some grievance. And so like, if you just go on the claims of the terrorists themselves, these are not, we're doing this just because we hate somebody so much. We hate their freedoms. We hate their beliefs. It's we're doing this because we're trying to accomplish a specific political objective to get a military out of this place or in retaliation for this event. So again, it's just, it's not making us more secure from people everywhere who are just trying to kill me all the time. It's creating these people. Yeah, absolutely. And and the ever since uh, sort of Bush, the Bush era, we we've had the war on terror and this word terrorism and terror as if it's this sort of unique thing. And I just I just did a, a Google define colon terrorism and it's the use of violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims. So how how the U.S. does not use that term to apply what they're doing in their action which is the use of violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims <laughs> is beyond me to say that we're having a war on terror uh, via terror. It's just, it's awful. It's an awful use of language, you know, and that's, that's, that's the least of it. Yeah. Right. If, I, oh. if, if only it were only that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the, to the last one. Thalidomide. Mm-hmm. Marketed the, everybody's favorite example. Well, I'm, well I'm, I may be leading with my chin on this one, but I'm going to lead with it anyway. 50s and 60s, it is marketed in Europe as a drug to help women get through the nausea that they sometimes experience during pregnancy. The Food and Drug Administration said it had been inadequately tested in the United States and forbade it to be marketed in this country, with the result that thousands of children were born with horrible birth uh, defects in Europe two mothers who had used thalidomide, but that didn't happen to American children because true. the FDA had intervened and kept that drug off the market. Thank God for the FDA, right? Wrong. All right, why? This is a case in which they did save lives. This was a good case. But I suppose they uh, are equally slow in adopting a drug which turns out to be very good and very beneficial. How do you ever see the lives that are lost because of that? You're an FBA official. Right. You have a question of whether to approve or disapprove a new drug. If you approve it, and it turns out to be a bad drug like thalidomide, you're in the soup. You're gonna, your name's going to be on every Cost front page. Cost me my job. I get hauled up to right. Congress to testify. Right. On the other hand, if you disapprove it, but it turns out to be good, well, then later on you approve it four or five years later, Nobody is going to complain about the fact that you didn't prove it earlier, except those greedy uh, pharmaceutical companies that want to make profits at the expense right. of the public, as the saying, go, as, as everybody will say. Uh, and so the result is that the pressure on the FDA is always to be late in approving. And there is enormous evidence that they have caused more deaths by their late approvals than they have saved by their early approvals. 
Just about every argument for regulation is actually an argument for the value of safety that proves nothing about the value of regulation. Yeah, this is one where I, I think people have this weird dual belief that on the one hand, they believe that humans are so self-interested that they will go out there and try to profit off of anybody. They don't care how much it harms them. Uh, on the other hand, they have so little faith in self-interest they think that people would go out and do things that harm their customers and cause them to not make any profit. So, so I, I had a Facebook post a, several months ago where I just sort of jokingly said, every day I check to see if the FDA has been abolished so that I can finally start selling poisoned food and killing my customers. You know, like yeah. as if, as if, you know, the existence of these regulatory bodies, you know, OSHA and, and the FDA and the whatever, whatever other administrations are you know, creating all these regulations and, and safety precautions, whatever, as if it's the existence of those. That's the only thing that's keeping businesses from, you know, like that old Saturday Night Live sketch, like selling a bag of broken glass to kids, you know, yeah. um, bag of glass. And the absurdity of it to me, it's I don't have this, and people will post things like, oh, you have this utopian view, like everybody wants to sell good quality products. No, it's the opposite of that. I'm such a cynic, which is why I think the FDA is so terrible. And for two reasons that my cynicism says, I think companies and the people who run them are so profit driven that they'll do anything they can to make sure that they make money. And there's a great line from Thank You for Smoking where the guy says, we don't, the tobacco industry doesn't want this boy to die. We want him to live so he can keep smoking. <laughs> you know, this like you want to please your customers so that they'll keep coming back to you. That incentive is so strong. And on the other hand, the FDA, you give a monopoly, you say you don't have to please anyone, you don't have any competition, you're not accountable to anyone. You can ban a drug that would have saved lives, thousands of lives every year for 20 years, and you don't have to answer for all those people that died because they didn't get a drug. You can make special deals with some companies behind the scenes and approve their stuff and keep out their competitors. You don't have to be accountable for that because you're a government. I'm so cynical that I think giving that much power to somebody is dangerous and the market disperses that power. So it's not because I, I think safety is unimportant and that I want a world where everyone's getting electrocuted by every product they buy because it's unsafe. No, I want the opposite. And I think that's more likely to happen in a market than having a monopolistic regulation. Yeah, the FDA is, I guess, one of my favorite targets. It's like, let's set up a system where only a cartel of eight companies can launch a drug. <laughs> let's make it a billion dollars to do it. Let's Let's make any, you know, let's make it illegal for anyone to offer affordable, you know, healthcare, affordable medicine. Uh, it's just awful. And then I've, I've read articles, I, I can't cite one right now, uh, that actually have listed the body count of, you know, when, when a drug takes 15 years more to get to market uh, because of the the regulatory process, the, the, the you know, clinical trials, you know, how, how many people have actually died because of, of that lag you know, and what, it's, it'd be a lot more than if, if they had released it early and yeah. a few, a, you know, a few early people, you know, had the side effects. And, and we're and not talking like, about like releasing a chemical from a helicopter on a bunch of unwitting people. We're talking about it's not only that it restricts the companies from innovating, it's that it restricts consumers from saying, I want to try 
this drug. I want to take the risk. You know, maybe I'm on my deathbed. Maybe I'm, I'm willing to do anything. No, I'm sorry. You don't have the right to do that. You know, they do these press conferences announcing when the FDA has approved a new drug and they get to take all the credit. They've got the FDA symbol. The FDA has just approved this drug. It will save 18,000 lives every year. And I'm always like, so that means that many people died in the last, you know, 12 years when you were going through the approval process. But yeah, it, it also distorts the economics of, of the whole process because uh, you're you're only going to go for things that are, are going to be highly marketable, which is, you know, people bemoan that things like Viagra and the hair replacement drugs get priority over treating, you know, a very you know niche form of cancer. But if 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 the pharmaceutical companies have to spend a billion dollars to get something done. They have to make sure they, they get their money back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So if it's going to cost a whatever amount, either way, you've got to keep picking the things that have a massive market, you know? Yeah. And then I remember um, before Ron Paul left office, he introduced legislation that said people who were diagnosed with a terminal disease within a three-month time frame should be allowed to take drugs that weren't approved by the FDA. And if, if you thought what would happen if that if that went through, all of a sudden there would be this huge uh, test marketplace for small, you know, non non big cartel companies to come yeah. in and try out their medicines. And then this wonderful opportunity for these people who are guaranteed to die to potentially be saved. And of course, the legislation was left off the floor, which was kind of sad. Yeah, I wanted to tell my I have another experience is probably the most interesting work projects I ever did was uh, was this 20 page paper on mining safety. <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, you think you think with all the stuff on like that I, I, I get to do. Uh, listeners don't know I'm, I'm, I'm a writer and I have a graphics company as well. And we write papers on different business subjects. And some of them sound interesting, like mobile app development or uh, you, you know, developing video games or whatever, but the two pages on mining safety sounds interesting. I don't know about 20. No, they went into some, um, I'm going on a tangent here. They went into some really cool things like, uh, the whole reasons why, why mines are, are unsafe. You know, it's basically, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's sort of a, a risk-taking group, you know, in these dark places using, you know, 20, 20 ton machines. The, and one of the big findings is they, they found that, people were afraid to track data on mining incidents because it was about death. So it was very hard to get data on an event where a lot of people would be guilty of neglect and to talk about all this pain. And then they went into some really neat solutions about using analytics for mining safety uh, to, to find out, you know, when a, predict when a machine might be malfunctioning uh, using RFID tags to and other internet of things type things where if, if an unqualified person entered a space, he would be, you know, an alarm would go off or he wouldn't be allowed to access the area. They would use video game technology to simulate mining safety events. So we're beyond events. Can, we're beyond canaries now, huh? Yeah. No, <laughs> just so. So a lot of really cool technologies and, and using um, video at video analytics, which is where uh, they take like like a Watson type technology and the computer can actually watch video and, and see patterns of where, where accidents could happen. So a uh, fascinating thing. But then, so during this, during these processes, when I'm, when I'm learning about what we're going to write, I have to interview the executives and, and I brought up regulation, you know, you know, how much is regulation part of this? And every time it was just like, 
like a, a stupid laugh fest of of how useless it was because obviously these these other things that they're doing are are a hundred times more advanced than anything the regulators were were proposing, and the they essentially saw the regulation as just sort of like a, uh, a you know a bribe to the government. You know there was just these fees that they had to pay, but the real cost of of a mining event, if if you think like a, if a dirt hauler or a, or a mine is shut down for an hour, they lose you know something like one hundred and forty thousand dollars per hour for every every hour that mine is down. If people die, then they you know there's millions of dollars in in lawsuits and insurance payments and stuff that they have to cover. The the business disaster that happens with with a, with a real disaster is, is so much more intense than anything yeah. that regulators yeah. can bring in yeah that you know that that is actually that reminds me of um another john hasness the author of the the myth of the rule of law he actually has a lecture i think it's online i think reason magazine did a recording of it but about the bp oil spill if you guys remember when the bp oil spill what was it called deep water or something like that out in the the gulf of mexico and he says anytime Anytime you see a business engaging in an activity that just seems like, wow, that seems like a really risky activity, usually there is a regulation behind it that makes it artificially less risky than it otherwise would be. And when you look at a lot of regulations, their actual intent is not to reduce risk, it's actually to increase risk. It's actually because in the market, it's too costly to build houses on the shoreline of North Carolina where there's hurricanes all the time. So the prices are too high. People don't do it. Developers don't like this. And so they get government to subsidize flood insurance to bring down artificially the cost on the market to make it so that people take bigger risks. And this was exactly the case with the BP oil spill. No companies were doing this deep water drilling because they knew if something goes wrong, it's so far away from things to help. It's so deep. There's all these technical problems that the risk is too high and they knew that if it damaged all of these you know, properties, they would have to pay again in civil court, civil lawsuits, all these things. So they didn't do it. So there's actually a written into the regulatory code. There's a cap on the damages. If you do deep water drilling, the, the EPA put this in there to say, you can only be penalized so much that we're actually gonna be the ones that come in and tell you how much you have to pay everyone. And it's capped at a rate that was lower than the natural market risk. And this is what induced these companies. And they did this explicitly to induce companies to start drilling more because they wanted to stop importing as much oil from other countries and be more nationalistic and whatever. And so the regulation was actually a way of increasing the amount of risk taking and decreasing the amount of safety that you would naturally find in the open market, which is which is very, very common. Yeah. And if I, if I recall correctly, uh, correctly. It was illegal to actually come closer to shore where it would have been safer. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know the details on that. But but I also do I know that yeah. in that case, even so before the government got involved, BP had started paying out all these claims to everybody just voluntarily. And um, once the government came in and made it a criminal case, all of those payments had to immediately stop. So it actually harmed the people BP was making them whole. And once it's under criminal investigation, all that stuff is on hold. Uh, so just the whole thing, it was just a, a totally the opposite of making things safer. Yeah, and we have the other example we could bring up in this, it, and we don't have to go this into detail, but the financial crisis of 2008 mm. was again yeah. another, another case of, of regulation making risk more attractive yeah inducing people to take you're not taking enough risk you're not buying enough houses you're not taking out enough loans let's make sure you do that and then when it and then when it doesn't work 
it's always, oh man, greedy capitalists, markets, they're too dangerous. We need regulations. So let's, let's uh, tie this up. Uh, doublespeak is alive and well. Those who succeed in making the name of their pet policy linguistically interchangeable with a basic universal value always get to play offense. Yeah, that's so really, why don't you that's the unpack trick. that? Yeah, yeah. That's so. Double speak is from uh, a great phrase from 1984, George Orwell's. And I'm not probably not using it quite correctly the way that it's used in the book. If I remember, it's been many years, but it's essentially, you know, you get to a point where a concept gets associated with other things so much so to where it actually starts to mean the opposite. So you know, like war is peace. You know, freedom is slavery. Um, these are these great famous quotes from the book. So um, I, I think getting a word to be so strongly associated with another word that's just a basic thing that everybody values. Oh, education, you know, learning stuff. That's great. That's just obviously something that's valuable to humans. You know, compassion. Um, you know, maybe we could maybe we could debate, you know, altruism and, and whether it's good or bad in all of its forms. But I don't think anybody would argue like having empathy for another human. That's a good thing. You know, order. We don't you know chaos is kind of scary and dangerous. Some some element of predictability. So you t as long as you can get a specific sort of policy like a regulation or the military linguistically interchangeable with something like that, the minute you do that. Now, everyone who is opposing that policy is always playing defense. They're always having to explain mm -hmm. why they don't mean that they hate order. They just mean they don't like this particular law. They don't mean that they hate. So they're always on the defensive. And even if their arguments are right, if you're just an outside observer, the person who is always defending, no, I don't hate puppies and humanity and rainbows. They always look worse because it's always like, well, why, why do you have to go out of your way to say that? You know, <laughs> and it's yeah. just, it's a really nefarious game. So what I like to do is always try to flip the argument as soon as possible and, and sort of be kind of cute with it. But, you know, Mark Twain's famous quote, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education, you know, to say, you know, liberal arts are so important that you shouldn't go to school. Um, yes, I think safety, consumer safety is of vital importance. In fact, it's so important that the last thing I want to do is entrust it to the same people that run the DMV. And to flip it in that way and to show that not only do I value these things, but I value them so much that I don't dare associate them with this nasty, blunt behemoth called the state. And, I, I, you know, and it's, it's hard. I don't know that you can win that rhetorical battle, but it's fun. Yeah, and I, I see... Um... This is sort of like a, an opportunistic tool for the state to to justify its growth into every single area that it wants to get into. And then also for the the normal citizenry is a way to be lazy with, with any of these uh, objectives. Yeah. To say, we've done something and now the problem's over. So. Yeah, that's really the ultimate, it's really the ultimate off the hook is election season, you know? Well, we get to we get to all posture and yell and you know say that we don't like this and we like this and well, I voted, therefore I have done my job to try to get the values I care about put out there into the world, um, which is really lazy and kind of dangerous when you, when you think about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of pathetic as yeah. well, isn't it? It is. It really is. Okay, cool. Well, um, well I'd like yeah, this to is thank fun. you for having me having me on your podcast well, thank you for having and me on your podcast oh <laughs> this is uh this is good we, we're gonna have to do this again where we where we uh you know find a theme riff on it and then the beauty of it is 
uh, with one recording, we each get an episode. So yeah, cool. All right. Uh, till okay. next time. Okay. Bye bye. Heard all the things you never told me, but I didn't believe them at all. I saw all the things you never showed me, but I saw nothing at all. If it'll keep you from saying goodbye tomorrow, Goodbye today. If it'll keep you staying just one more minute, then I'll get up and walk away. Goodbye.